Well, if you would, turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. Internet fads come and go. Viral images last for a, a period of a few weeks. But I wonder how many of you remember the dress. Does anybody remember this one? This was a picture taken of a dress at a store in England. And it went viral. Tens of millions of people uh, interacted over this photo because of a simple question in the caption. What color is this dress? Now, it might seem to be a fairly obvious answer. It's white and gold. Uh, but for a few weeks, many people weighed in on this. And there was hot debate and all kinds of things. Well, it turns out uh, the dress is not white and gold. Our eyes can actually deceive us. The dress is blue and black. And you ask, how could that be? I clearly saw the picture. It was white and gold. Well, it actually has something to do, and I'm not going to get into all the details, but it has something to do with the lens of the camera, and it has something to do with the way our brains process color images. So depending on the lens you use, people looking at the same photo of the same dress could come to very different conclusions. And I think that's true not only of pictures, but it's true of the Bible, and it's true of life itself. The lens through which we view the Bible matters. And mainly it matters because the lens through which we view the Bible is going to be the lens through which we view all of life. So Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 1, is going to help give us a corrective lens, as it were, and to help us understand the scriptures because our lens is often distorted. So follow along if you would. I'm going to read from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So in this passage, Peter's going to give us a corrective lens. I like to think of it as a single corrective lens in three parts. And the first part of the corrective lens that Peter gives us is to show us that the whole Bible points to Jesus. If you look at verse 10, Peter's talking about the prophets who prophesied. Now, this is simply shorthand for the human authors who wrote the Old Testament, as Pastor Doug read a minute ago from 2 Peter. So Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Old Testament, was considered a prophet. And Isaiah and Samuel and all the rest uh, were prophets after him. So the prophets are the human authors of the Old Testament. But if you notice... Peter makes it very clear that they weren't coming up with original material. Uh, these weren't cleverly devised fables, but it was in fact the spirit of Christ in them that was indicating to them what they were to write. That is to say, Christ, before he came into the world, 
inspired the human authors of the Old Testament to write what they wrote. So in this sense, he is both the divine author and the subject of the Old Testament. I like the way Edmund Clowney put it. He said, Jesus, not simply, Jesus is not simply the one of whom the prophets speak. He is the one who speaks through the prophets. Not only does prophecy bear witness to Jesus, but Jesus bears witness through prophecy. Now you might be thinking to yourself, okay, pastor, I've, I've done Pastor Don's Bible reading, I've been through the whole Old Testament, and I don't see Jesus' name mentioned even once in the Old Testament. And that's true. He's not mentioned by name. But I assure you, he is there. Consider what Jesus himself said about the Old Testament. Uh, as he was in a confrontation with the Pharisees, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Now, when he's speaking this to the Pharisees, the only scriptures were the Old Testament scriptures. And then after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, he caught up with his disciples, and it says, beginning with Moses, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And again, when he appeared to his disciples in Jerusalem, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. So one of the challenges we have, and it's, it's not only an issue of how we think, it's also an issue of faith, is to see Jesus clearly and appropriately in the Old Testament. Now, we don't have a transcript of what Jesus shared with his disciples. Of course, we have something far better in the New Testament. Uh, that's way better than what, you know, if we had a written transcript of that conversation. But I want to try and share with you briefly uh, and in very summary form. This is not exhaustive. But I want to share with you some of the ways that the Old Testament points us to Jesus. We're going to go too fast to take notes, so feel free to just listen, and if you'd like a copy, I can send you the notes afterward. So how does the Old Testament point us to Jesus? Genesis points to Jesus as the seed of the woman and the offspring of Abraham. Exodus points to him as the mediator of a better covenant than Moses. In Leviticus, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In Numbers, just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the desert, so the Son of Man was lifted up for the salvation of his people. In Deuteronomy, he's the prophet like Moses who speaks the very words of God, the words that lead to eternal life. In Joshua, he's leading us into the promised land where he is giving us a better Sabbath rest than Joshua could have. In Judges, He's the one who brings order to our chaos and puts everything right when everyone's doing what is best in their own eyes. In the book of Ruth, he is our kinsman redeemer and the one who perfectly embodies the steadfast love of the Lord. In the books of Samuel, he is David's greatest son and the one who's going to rule all the nations with justice and righteousness forever. In the books of Kings, we learn that he is wiser than Solomon and he is faithful to the end where all other kings failed. In the books of Chronicles, with its great focus on the temple, 
We learn that his body is the temple, that though it was destroyed, it was raised up in three days. In the book of Ezra, we learn that Christ is the fulfillment of the law in which Ezra delighted, in which he gave himself to teaching the people. In the book of Nehemiah, we learn that Jesus is the builder of God's house, that he is building the church, and he's using us as living stones in his building. In the book of Esther, Jesus is the one born in the fullness of time to ever live to make intercession for his people. In the book of Job, Jesus is the innocent sufferer who brings about vindication from God in the end. In the book of Psalms, he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who comes in the name of the Lord and who is going to make all things new one day. In the book of Proverbs, he is the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Ecclesiastes points to him as the substance that gives meaning to the vanity of our lives. The Song of Solomon points to Jesus as the bridegroom, the one who woos and wins the hearts of his bride. In Isaiah, there's too many to name. The early church called Isaiah the fifth gospel. But suffice to say, he is the servant of the Lord, who through his suffering was vindicated and brought about the salvation of many people. In Jeremiah, we learn that it's in Jesus' blood that the new covenant is ratified. From Lamentations, we see that he is the one who gives his cheek to the one who strikes, but whom the Lord did not cast off forever. In Ezekiel, he's the one who removes our hearts of stone and gives us a heart of flesh that we might walk in his ways. In the book of Daniel, he is the son of man who is presented to the ancient of days to receive an everlasting kingdom. In Hosea, he is the faithful husband to his often unfaithful bride, his people. In the book of Joel, we learn that everyone who calls on his name will be saved. In the book of Amos, we learn that he's gathering the remnant of his people from among all the nations, that it's not only the people of Israel, but even the Gentiles as well. In Obadiah, we learn that all the kingdoms of the earth belong to him, and he is the one who is returning to judge the living and the dead. In the book of Jonah, just as Jonah spent three days in the belly of the fish, so Jesus spent three days in the belly of the earth. In the book of Micah, he's the Messiah who was born at Bethlehem. In Nahum, he is the one to whom vengeance belongs. He is the avenger of his people. In Habakkuk, he is the one who makes us righteous by faith so that we can have eternal life in him. In Zephaniah, he's the mighty one who saves, who rejoices over his people with singing. He delights in us. In Haggai, when he returns at his second coming, the heavens and the earth will be shaken, but the whole earth will be full of his glory. In Zechariah, he is the king who came once riding on a donkey, who at that time was pierced. But when he returns in the sky, when all eyes see him, all the nations will weep and wail on account of him. And in Malachi, he is God in the flesh, whose messenger, John, went before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And I'll tell you, to see Jesus in all the pages of this book, it'll set your heart on fire. I wish I could convey it more faithfully to you. It's not merely an intellectual exercise to understand how the Old Testament points us to Jesus. It's a matter of seeing Christ in all of his beauty, in all of his glory, in the ways that God has revealed him to us. If we talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus, it's crucial that we know him. 
And this book is printed together, if you notice. It's not just the New Testament. It's not just the Old Testament. But all of this book points us to our Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to encourage you, if you've grown stagnant in your Bible reading, if you find yourself getting through some of those Old Testament passages and it's just hard to press on, ask yourself, how is this pointing me to Jesus? And if you need some help with this, uh, let me encourage you, there's some great resources out there. One that I would recommend, it's called The Big Picture Story Bible by David Helm. It's a children's Bible, but I'll tell you, I've learned more from children's books in recent days about how the Bible points us to Jesus than I probably learned in four years of seminary. Now, some of you may have never read the Bible for yourself, and so I want to speak to you for just a moment. If you've never read the Bible, start in the New Testament. Start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. But as you read, and as you see Jesus' life unfolded on the pages of Scripture, notice how often the Old Testament is quoted or alluded to. You can't understand the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. That all these prophets who are prophesying for century after century, they're talking about one person, ultimately. There's a lot of other things they talk about, but the main thing they're talking about is Jesus. And so, let me encourage you to take up and read. It uh, doesn't matter where you start ultimately. Just read until you see Jesus in the pages of Scripture. So that's one corrective lens that Peter gives us about how to read the Bible, is that Jesus, the whole Bible points to Jesus as both the author and the subject of the Old Testament. The second part of our corrective lens, and I don't know why that turned out so small up there. <laughs> the second part of the corrective lens is not only does the whole Bible point us to Jesus, but it points us specifically to a pattern about Jesus that we need to recognize which is that the Messiah would come and he would suffer and then he would enter into his glory. And that pattern means a great deal for how we read the Bible and how we interpret our own lives. The Spirit of Christ, when he spoke to the prophets who wrote the Old Testament, he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. The glory does not come before the suffering. The suffering comes before the glory. So that is how Jesus himself read the scriptures. Okay, let's go back to the Emmaus Road for just a moment here. Before he opened the scriptures to them, he said, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? That was the necessary pattern, and then he opened their minds to the scriptures. And again, as he opened their minds back in Jerusalem, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the, and on the third day rise from the dead. This is the pattern through which we as Christians need to read the Bible and then interpret our lives through that same lens, this pattern of suffering and glory. Because not only did Jesus share this after he rose from the dead, it's one thing to say, see, I told you after everything already happened, but Jesus actually knew this was going to happen in advance. And so if you've read the Bible, you know Mark chapter 8. It's in all the synoptic gospels. Jesus predicted his own suffering before it happened. So in Mark 8.31 says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes 
and be killed, and after three days rise again. Now that little word in the middle of that sentence, must, that's a haunting word. He must suffer. Keep in mind all that we've sung about. This is the Son of God who existed in eternity past before the world began, who exchanged the praises in heaven, holy, 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 for the humiliation of a crowd that would cry, crucify him. That's the exchange that he made. But it says that he must suffer. Now on the one hand, we know that he had to suffer because there was no other way to pay for sins. This is why Christ Jesus came into the world, to save sinners. Sin must be punished. But there is another reason. It doesn't exclude the first, but there's another reason. Jesus had to suffer because that was the will of God revealed in the scriptures. The Old Testament itself tells Jesus that he must suffer and then enter into his glory. And so he did all of this, especially highlighted in Isaiah chapter 53, where the servant of the Lord suffered and then entered into his glory. And that becomes a prominent text later on in 1 Peter. But this is how Jesus read the Bible. He read the Bible through the lens of suffering and the glory to follow. But if you know your Bible, you know that there was at least one person who did not read the scriptures that way. And that was the author of our book right here, Peter. There was a time in Peter's life where he didn't see the pattern of suffering and then glory. He saw it as suffering in the past and glory now and into the future. But that's not what was going to happen. And so as soon as Jesus shared with them that he had to suffer, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine? Like, okay, Jesus, I'll acknowledge you're the Messiah. So they would have understood that the whole Old Testament is pointing to this Messiah. Okay, so they understand the unity of the scriptures in that sense. So I'll acknowledge that all these prophecies are fulfilled in you, but I don't think you quite understand what that means. See, you're, you're supposed to restore the kingdom now. Is it at this time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And that's great because we got in on the ground floor, so we get the right hand and the left, and we get the pomp and the circumstance, and maybe we'll get a coronation too, like we saw yesterday. Maybe we'll all dress up in costumes and sit on thrones. That's not what happened. And so Jesus turned and rebuked Peter. But Peter had a hard time grappling with this idea of a suffering Messiah. Part of it was because Peter didn't really understand the scriptures. He didn't understand this pattern of suffering and then glory. But I actually think part of it was that Peter didn't want a suffering Messiah. And I think many of us are in that same category. We don't really want a Messiah who suffers. There's a lot of us in the church today who because we don't understand the scriptures, we don't understand this pattern of suffering that must come before glory. See, in our flesh, we like our saviors to win. We want them to win now. We want them to win later. Onward and upward. That's all we want from our saviors. But that's not how Jesus operates. Jesus forsook the glory of heaven to come and endure suffering on this earth, as was the will of God. 
And so, yes, there is glory coming. Make no mistake about that, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the suffering must come first. It's suffering, then glory. It's the cross, and then the crown. That's the pattern laid out for Jesus in the scriptures, and it's the pattern for all of us who would follow him. See, the blessing of salvation is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. The term that the Bible uses to have this relationship is that we are in him. That's the most common term in the New Testament for being saved, for being a Christian, is that we are in him or with him. And if we are with him, that means we are with him in his suffering, in suffering that we ourselves will incur. And if we are with him in the suffering, then we can be sure that we'll be with him in glory. That's the pattern. That's exactly what Peter wants his readers to see. If your eyes glance back up to verse 6, he acknowledges that his readers have been grieved by various trials. And I'm looking out over this room here. It's a little difficult because there's a spotlight here. But as I look out over this room, I see your faces. And I can point at several of you in this congregation who are grieved by various trials. And I don't know the half of it. You know what you're going through. You know how hard this life has been. You know how hard the Christian life has been. Even if your circumstances haven't been that difficult, putting sin to death is hard. Dying to self, as it turns out, feels a lot like death. And it's painful. But now is the time to endure the suffering because glory is coming. Notice how he started this passage in verse 10. Concerning this salvation, time would fail us to go back and talk about the inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading that is being kept in heaven for us. But that's what he's talking about. There's glory coming. But now is the time of the suffering and the cross. Many of you have had nothing but heartache and disappointment since you've become Christians. And so you need to know your experience is not an anomaly. It is not out of the ordinary if your Christian life has been full of trials, various trials, grievous trials. This is the normal pattern of the Christian life. But you need to know that there's glory coming. And so Peter, who in his former ignorance did not understand the scriptures, did not want a suffering Messiah, he came to realize I think I missed something on my slide here. He came to realize that we need to read the Bible this way. We need to see Jesus clearly in the scriptures to understand his suffering and glory so that we might understand the grace that is ours in him. See, we know what the prophets didn't. You know, one of the ways that Jesus fulfills the pictures of the Old Testament is the fact that Jesus himself was the last prophet in Israel. If you ever want to know who the last prophet was, it was Jesus. Do you remember what he said in Matthew 23? After this whole long, drawn-out debate with the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, and this whole explanation that the landlord in a far country had sent one servant who was dismissed, another servant who was beaten, he said, finally, I'm going to send my son. Maybe they'll listen to him. They said, this is the son, the heir. We're going to kill him. 
And what did Jesus say even before he knew he was going, or even before he went to the cross, before they knew he was going to the cross? He said, fill up then the measure of your fathers. Because they persecuted all those prophets, all those people that wrote those books in the Old Testament. They had hard lives. You read the book of Jeremiah, and he is beaten by the priests. He's thrown in the stocks. He's thrown in a mud pit and just left. They had hard lives. And everything they knew about the Messiah who was coming, they greeted from afar. I see him, but not now. I see him, but not near. But in faith, they knew he was coming. They didn't know the time or the circumstances or what kind of person he would be. But we know. We know Jesus. We know what kind of vindication he received. It wasn't the kind of vindication that ended with a coronation in Jerusalem. In fact, it was the very opposite. It was a state execution in Jerusalem. The coronation is in heaven. He was raised from the dead bodily. And as I stand here talking to you at 1024 on Sunday morning, Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father in full glory. And we don't see that yet. We don't see the fullness of his glory inhabiting the whole earth. But it is coming. And the prophets didn't clearly see that. Can you imagine what a blessing we have this side of the cross and resurrection? You know why Jesus said that there was no one greater than John born of woman and yet even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he? Because he didn't see it. John the Baptist, you could call him the last of the Old Testament prophets, the Old Covenant prophets. And he said, you know what? Here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then he said, is it really you? Is it really you? And he died in prison before the glory came. Do you see? We have a privileged position. And I'll tell you, like you read Psalm 119 and how they searched the scriptures diligently. They wanted to know who this man was. And so often we set it on a shelf to collect dust. Why would we not of all people, with our privileged position in the history of mankind, devote ourselves to seeing Jesus in all his glory here in the scriptures? We know Christ crucified and risen. And Peter wants us to know that because he wants us to know that we have a glorious hope that will sustain us in our suffering. For the Christian it's not all suffering, but there is glory to come. John Calvin said, this order cannot be changed or subverted. Afflictions must precede glory. But in light of that, he said two things. First, Christians must suffer many troubles before they enjoy glory. So that, that much is a fact. But the second thing he said, very insightful. He said, we ought not consider afflictions evil, because they have glory attached to them. You see? If you've got a corrective lens to see your suffering as attached, like inextricably linked, it's not like there's this uncertainty about your present suffering, as though it's going to go on forever, or as though it's going to end in, in worse suffering. If you are in Christ, 
Your suffering is inextricably linked to glory. How amazing is that? Can you endure if it's just a little while longer? Even if it was the rest of your earthly life, it's still just a little while. Hang on. There's glory coming. And Peter wants us to see that. See, the trouble is we often get blinded by our suffering. Our lens gets even further distorted. Because we're finite creatures in our ignorance, we often don't understand these things. Because of our sin and our pride, we often don't understand these things. And all of that is compounded by the fact that suffering has this sort of cocooning effect where you just can't seem to get out of it. And all you can see right in front of your face is the hard times that you're going through. And Peter says, open that. Like, get rid of that, that cloud and see the glory that is waiting for you, the good news that's been announced to you. What Georgie heard at VBS so many years ago, what you and I have heard, many of us here are Christians, all the good news that we've heard about Jesus is what sustains us. Because his suffering ended in glory, we can be certain that ours will as well. In John 16, 33, he said, In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. It is in our present darkness that the light of the scriptures shine most brightly. So if you're a Christian here today, I hope this text is an encouragement to you to persevere just a little while longer. I hope you're able to see the scriptures clearly in the pattern of Jesus' suffering and glory. And I hope you're able to see the suffering in your own life for its proper context. John Owen is a a favorite of mine, an author. We have several of his books in the library if you'd like to check them out after the service. He was an English pastor, theologian, head of a, a university for many years. And he suffered a lot in his life. Uh, he was persecuted for his faith at times. At times he was uh, very favored, but by the end of his life he was basically in exile in his own country. And on top of all of this, John Owen buried his wife and 11 children. He was not survived by any of his children. But he once wrote, All my sorrows have a bottom that may be fathomed. In other words, fathom is like plumbing the depths of the sea. The ocean is deep, but it has a bottom. It has a fixed end point. It doesn't go on forever. And my trials have bounds that can be compassed. So you can, you can walk around the outside of, of boundaries that you can compass. It's finite. It's fixed. But the love of the Father has no bounds. And with a sense of his kindness, which is better than life, I rejoice in tribulation. I glory in affliction. And I triumph as a conqueror. My prayer for our church is that we will rejoice in tribulation, that we will glory in affliction and triumph as conquerors. That's only going to happen if we know our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me?
Our Father, as the Greeks at the Passover so long ago said, we long to see Jesus. Father, many of us are familiar with the scriptures, and yet we have a hard time seeing him in all the pages of this book that you've inspired. Father, I pray that you would correct our vision, that we would see him more clearly. As we begin to see him and to know that by our salvation that we are united with him through faith by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray that we would endure our sufferings and look forward all the more eagerly to the glory that is to come. Oh, Father, help the struggling today. We know there are people in our midst in this room whose faith is shaken by their trials. Father, sustain them this morning. Father, there are some in our midst who don't know Jesus, who are not very acquainted with Christianity. Lord, I pray that as they look to the suffering in their lives, that they search for meaning in all of it, that they would have a hunger and a thirst to know Jesus. Lord, may they speak to somebody today to take steps toward walking with you. And Father, for those of us who may not be enduring particular seasons of suffering at this time, I pray that you would give us eyes to see those who are suffering around us. And may we be an encouragement and a balm to help them along the way. Father, we pray all of this for the glory of your name, the glory of your son Jesus, and for the glory of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.